Thank you for listening to the following films podcast. Today I'm joined by director Keith Maitland to talk about his new film, Dear Mr. Brody. Dear Mr. Brody tells the incredible story of hippie millionaire Michael Brody Jr., who in 1970, at the age of 21, announced to the public that he planned to give away his multi-million dollar fortune. Brody and his wife became overnight celebrities, mobbed by the public, scrutinized by the press, and overwhelmed by a crush of personal letters from across America responding to his extraordinary offer. Using a mix of archival footage, psychedelic animation, stylized recreations, and interviews with the letter writers themselves, Dear Mr. Brody offers a moving meditation on universal human struggles and needs, as well as a uniquely preserved snapshot of a year of American history that deeply resonates today. Dear Mr. Brody will be available on Discovery Plus on April 28th. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Keith, thank you for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. It's nice to meet you. Uh, You as well. Um, I was a huge fan of Tower, which is why I wanted to speak with you. And I didn't think that when the follow-up film was coming out that I would be so deeply moved by it that my mind, I would just move Tower away and say, fuck it, I don't really care at this point. I love that movie. Enough has been said about it. Let's talk about the new one now. And this is something that it's, I love it when that happens because I don't expect it. And I was really, there's a special kind of itch that this scratches where stories that have been lost, things that haven't been told that were sensational, huge stories at the time, but we somehow forget about, you know, in five, 10, 15, and now we're looking at 40 years later, this story I think has been lost in history. At least I wasn't familiar with it. Um, When did you become familiar with Michael Brody's story? Yeah. I mean, uh, like you, I had never heard of it and I had no relationship to it. Um, I became aware of it uh, through my wife, uh, Sarah Wilson, who's one of our producers and cinematographer on the film. Um, she was college roommates with Melissa Glassman, who discovered the letters in Ed's storage unit. And so, um, you know, after Melissa discovered the letters, which now is 10 years ago, um, she, yeah, it was in 2012, she, you know, she said to Ed, one, what are these letters? And then he told her, you know, the story of Brody and the the hippie millionaire and the film that he wanted to make that, you know, they weren't able to make. And Melissa was the head of Ed's development. And she said, well, let's try and make this film today. Uh, Ed had lost the script to the years. And so there was no script. There was just uh, an idea and a rights agreement with the family from forever ago. And so, uh, So Melissa had the idea of putting together a little package of information and visuals to try and drum up some investors to fund a new screenplay. And she reached out to her college roommate, Sarah, um, because Sarah's a great photographer. And Melissa needed some pictures of these letters because she recognized the value of the beauty of the visual of the letters. And so that's how it came to us is that Melissa asked Sarah, you know, if Sarah would do her the favor of taking some pictures of letters if she sent her a box of letters And so she sent us just like a shoebox of letters. And when I saw the letters, Sarah pulled them out. Melissa had told us we could open as many of them as we wanted. You know, we just both were bowled over by the story of the letters and the idea that Brody kicked into the world in 1970. And I, I didn't even know Melissa that well then, you know, she's Sarah's old friend. Um, but we flew up to New York from Austin. That's where I am in Austin, Texas. Um, flew up to New York and had coffee with Melissa. And I very kind of uh, diplomatically 
you know, took her temperature on what she thought of the idea of, of maybe doing a documentary before doing a scripted, you know, telling. Um, so that's the first time I became aware of it. And that was in the fall of 2015. Do you remember any of the stories that were in that shoe box? Did they make it into the final film? You know, I don't think any of them did. Um, only because we weren't very organized at the time, <laughs> you know? Uh, sure. No, why would you have been? For yeah. This? Um, I mean, the story that always grabs me the most isn't actually from the letters I read, but it's a letter. The first letter Melissa read, she always tells the story. Um, and she told it to us at the coffee shop. Uh, she said the first letter she opened up was from a six year old girl who said, if you send me $5, I could have a maxi coat. I've never had a winter coat and I'd love to have a maxi coat. And it always stood out to me because my mom, who's the same age as Michael Brody, used to always talk about the maxi coat she had in the 60s. I still don't even exactly know what a maxi coat is. But, um, and then Melissa told another story about a, like the second or third letter she opened up and a $5 bill came wafting out of the letter. And to me, like those two stories, the idea of this innocent child who needs money for a winter coat um, and, and this older person who recognized the value in what Brody was doing and basically was saying like, you're probably going to run out of money, but here's a little more to keep this good idea going. Um, like to me, those are the two poles of, of what grabbed me initially um, about it. And when you're constructing the story and I don't, it, it always feels weird when I'm talking about something that's actually happened as far as not spoiling something, but this is a story I didn't know exactly where it was heading, but I think you, you can feel pretty early on that this is, kind of a two-way story that there's a man who was offering to help the world who needed as much help as he was offering, probably more um, that, that he needed. How did you decide to approach that sort of balance of that material? Because I feel like you're not nodding your head to it and kind of tipping the hat to where this is headed the whole time. But when you kind of reflect on it, you can see that there was clearly a balance that you were trying to tell with those two elements of the story. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, I don't know. That's the, the, the benefit of telling the kind of stories that I've been able to tell is that there aren't simple solutions to these sorts of stories. There isn't like, like this is the way to do it. And so there's a lot of trial and error involved. Um, and I like that. Like, um, you know, I have an incredible editor, uh, Austin Reedy, who edited tower as well as this, um, you know, I'm working with the same producer, Megan Gilbride, who, who worked on tower with me and my wife, Sarah, who was a cinematographer on tower. So the only new person on our team was Melissa. And of course, she was the keeper of the letters and the lead. Um, and she threw herself fully and she actually quit working for Ed Pressman to make this movie. She moved down here to Austin. She moved into the house next to us um, and lived in the same house with the letters. And so the four of us, uh, the four producers and Austin, our editor, and eventually our friends, our family, our composer, the actors, like everybody gets involved. Um, you know, we just talk about what speaks to us in the story over and over. And, and, you know, my job is, is balance. It's exactly what it is, is it's, um, it's figuring out how to tell a compelling campfire story that has people leaning in at the right times, leaning back at the right times. And, uh, and so it's not, there's no, I wish I could say like I had some simple formula or I, or I knew, you know, right from the beginning, it wasn't that at all. It was, um, it was, having the benefit of taking time um, to, to just craft something that allowed the story to unfold the way that, you know, the way that I thought it was the most, uh, it was the most compelling 
uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little lost in my own words, but I, I wanted to slowly dole out information about Brody yeah. and I wanted to, you know, dial up a stronger and stronger connection to the letters so that there would be a point in time where the kind of balance, the scales balanced in a different way, but I didn't want anyone, I didn't want to tip the scale and I didn't want people to necessarily feel it coming. Um, and so I appreciate your, your comment on it. Uh, that was the goal. Well, I, th- I think you, you achieved that in, in that way. And it's something that um, isn't easy to do. And you, you somehow in the middle of this, where you've been working on this thing for you know decade now, and you know, kind of living with the story, you couldn't have known how relevant this would have been to the exact moment in time we are now. And the thing I was struck with, it's this um, when vaccines first became available. And it was this moment in time where it was like, well, let's just make sure that the people that are, you know, that are most in need get these vaccines. And, you know, you, I live in Arizona. So I live in one of those states, you know, not unlike Texas, where, you know, Austin being its own little oasis in there but surrounded by a lot of people that had very differing opinions about what we should do in this time. And I never wanted to cut in line, but I was very eager to be there, but it's, you know, my need is not as great as somebody in front of me. And really that's kind of the takeaway. I being the narcissist that I am, I filter everything through my own personal experience. It's the idea that you can feel down and desperate in need of a hand, whatever that may be. But hearing these letters and seeing that moment, it's just, okay, there's clearly people that are suffering much more than I am. And this has been a constant throughout history. And I think that there's a really beautiful and poignant sort of takeaway in that way. And I'm wondering if that was something you were thinking about with the last two years. I mean, yeah, it's wild. Like a story like this is never, unfortunately, I don't think it's ever not relevant, you know, like. Uh, there are so many themes like we, we packed a lot of humanity into this film because there's a lot of humanity packed into those bundles of letters. Um, and there's a lot of questions packed into Brody's story. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think we felt like when we pitched it back in 2016 um, to funders, we were saying there's never been a more relevant time than now. And then, you know, six months later, Trump was elected. And we watched, you know, for that, that first couple of years of, of that, where we felt like, God, there's never been a more relevant time than now. And then we finished the film in March of 2020. I mean, we finished the film three days before, you know, like basically the world shut down. Um, and yeah, for the last few years, it's like, wow, it only be- feels like it becomes more and more relevant. Um, and I think it's like, I mean, it's tough. Like my favorite, uh, my favorite filmmaker is Robert Altman. And, oh, sure. I love him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the thing I love about him is that he, so many people are, are obsessed with telling singular stories, you know, and he always looks at things from a community perspective and, and how everybody is connected and you can kind of hand off the camera, hand off the narrative. Um, and that's the way I look at things like, like you, I also have a narcissistic worldview that, that filters through myself, but then, you know, I'm the person who I can't help when I'm at the airport or, you know, at the football game or, or anywhere in public of just like obsessively watching other people and seeing their lives and imagining how their lives are like mine, how they're different than mine. And so I think this last two years, we've had a real like 
we've been, our own lives have been under a microscope where we've been forced to engage with like, what is the thousand square feet of life that we are experiencing every day without, you know, stepping outside. But I think we also have a real hunger to understand other people's um, lives uh, as well. And I mean, social media, you know, will show you, you know, uh, Facebook messages and Instagram and Twitter. They're not that different than these letters There's an opportunity for, for people to share their um, their perspectives on things and an opportunity for us to project ourselves into the lives of other people. So, yeah, I mean, going back to our first pitch for this thing, I don't think there's ever been a time that this story wasn't relevant. And I think you can kind of, uh, you can you can thank the volume of letter writers and the panop- panopoly, the panopticon, the <laughs> multifaceted, yeah. uh, you know, uh, narrative that unfolds, um, making it always, I think it will always, you know, have its time, you know, always feel right for the time. Well, it's that idea. It's the message in the bottle. It's just being deserted on an Island and throwing that out despite any hope that it'll actually come true. There's that one, one millionth of a chance that somebody will find this and know what to do with it when they find it. It's just, isn't that what social media is though? A, A lot of the times that we're just throwing things out into the world, hoping to connect with somebody. And we've started manipulating those things that we send out into the world to try to, I guess, to game the responses that we'll get. And to me, that was one of the big takeaways from these last two years is that I'm somebody who feels like I could, before this, that I could just be at home by myself. It wouldn't matter. I have my family. I have my kids. I have my dogs. I don't need anything else. I was wrong. I was dead wrong on how much I need to be around people and how much I'm not an introvert thought I was would have sworn it until two years ago. It's no, I need to be around warmth. I need to be around mindless, small talk. We need to be connected to people. And it's just that, that no matter what your situation is and how small it might be, I think we're constantly pitching out, you know, these symbols into the, into the ether to try to find connection with other people. And it's something that's deeply human and it's not going away. Yeah. I think that's, I think you're right. And then, so this is one of those films though, that I would imagine that it could be a pretty interesting exercise in seeing how people react to it in that it'll probably tell a lot about the person that you're talking to, maybe even more than it's telling about the film itself, that their reaction to it could be that personal. At least that's how it hit me. It feels like this is something that you'll you can't help but reflect on yourself with it. Are you seeing that in the way that people react to it? I think that's a, yes, I'd love that question. Um, honestly, it's the thing that I've missed the most about pandemic life and releasing this film during this time is, you know, I, I've had the benefit of spending a little bit of time with Barbara Koppel, the filmmaker, and she came to see this in New York uh, when we premiered in New York. And it was so wonderful to talk to her. Um, And I remember the first time I ever talked to Barbara, she said, you know, uh, a documentary filmmaker or any filmmakers um, greatest reward is watching the film with an audience and, and, and feeling the audience response. Um, And I think that's true of all films. And it's certainly something I experienced in tower in taking it out. And that's when I met Barbara, it was like at a screening of tower, but with Brody in particular, being in a room with this movie, with a crowd of people, you feel pockets of response to different parts of the movie in a way that my other films haven't engendered. Um, 
and you're absolutely right. Like if you've had cancer, take a parent from you, that moment really lands. If you have children or grandparents, if you've been hungry, you know, like you feel what people respond to and it's different for everybody. Um, and you know, I'm never, I'm never thinking too deeply about what the audience is going to take away from the film because I'm aware that they're going to take away almost whatever they take away is going to be based on what they bring to it. And I can't control that. Um, so what all I can control is how we communicate our ideas to, to leave enough space for them to have a relationship to it um, or to create a, an opportunity for them to have a relationship to it. And I do think like this particular film, um, it speaks to people on so many different like social facets. Um, there's no right way to feel about Brody. There's no right way to feel about these letter writers. There's no right way to feel about your own life. Um, so we don't try and control that at all. We just are excited to hear um, and to experience it when we've been able to be in a, in a room with an audience. And like I said, that's the shame is that we haven't been able to be in that many rooms with that many audiences. Um, well, and you're going to be, the, the nice thing is though, I think that you're right. You haven't been able to be in that many rooms, but documentary film is one of those things that is, it, it's a real theatrical experience to me. It's one of those things I think people miss kind of categorize. They think that they need to see documentary films. They can watch them at home. No big deal. There's nothing spectacular about it. It doesn't have the huge sound that you would find in like a Marvel movie or something like that. It's not that kind of a film, but to me, the communal aspect of being told a real life story. Sorry, my dogs are going nuts right now. My wife is just about to walk in the door are one of those things that I think really do need to be experienced with other people. But that being said, the social media element of it, I think there will be conversations around this where people will be sharing this film and they will, they're going to be on the, you know, on discovery. So this is going to be something where people will be able to find this and share it with each other and want to talk about this because you'll find pockets of people that'll be for me. I'm, I know myself enough to know that it, all the parent stuff, all the dad stuff, that's what's hitting home to me. It's just uh, those three daughters talking about their mom in that way. It's just, I'm, I'm done. I'm a sucker for it. I'm over. I had no chance, but it could be somebody talking about something that is like the, the Brody himself. That could have been what got them. And I know that that's just my own personal experience that I'm bringing to the table in that. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, I, and I, that's the same stuff that speaks to me. I mean, that's, why so much of that stuff is in there. And it's so much of like, you know, the theme for us, like as we were choosing which letters to include, which letter writers to go, you know, trek across the country and, and spend time with ourselves, with those themes were all born out of Brody's story. So once we realized that like from a psychological storytelling point of view, so much of Brody's story can be attributed to the loss of comfort and love and connection um, you know, uh, through the loss of his mom, um, and him seeking, you know, to fill that hole. Um, it made us really focus on the letters that are about parents and children. Um, you know, uh, cause that, I don't know, that's the thing that really speaks to me about the film is that at the end of the day, Michael Brody had every privilege of wealth afforded to him whether he had 25 million or 1 million it doesn't really matter he had every privilege you can you could want or need associated with wealth but he lacked a major advantage that some of the most you know poverty stricken letter writers had which is 
being surrounded by love, being raised with, with warmth and compassion and love. And, you know, I think that that is a theme, like I said, during the Trump years, that became like, you know, a, a, a real thing to track is, you know, like, obviously we all know money can't buy happiness. Um, you know, as, as Bruce Stevens says in the, in the film, it's the biggest lie from the devil. Um, but, and money can't buy love. It also can't replace love. Um, you know, and there is no replacement for love. And, and so no amount of money, no amount of fame, no amount of celebrity status or record contracts or, you know, fancy trips with celebrities, none of that can replace like the feeling and warmth that comes with, with love. And especially like, like yourself, I'm a dad and, you know, you kind of can't be a parent without like examining your relationship to love, your relationship to your own parents, your relationship to your own childhood. Um, and so, I mean, when we started making this film, Sarah and I had, a, you know, our son Theo was less than a year old when we started making the film and now he's a six year old, you know, we've experienced quite a bit in the making of the film. Um, and, and I'm glad that that stuff speaks with you, speaks to you. Do you think you would approach anything differently now though, having that experience coming to it and locking things in and would you want to do, would you approach the material any differently now? I mean, I don't think consciously I would necessarily approach it differently. I think that I'm a different person every day I wake up. So yes, you know, and like I said, there's a lot of trial and error. Um, I mean, the only thing that I know that's different, you know, if we knew, if we knew the pandemic was going to sideline the film for a year and a half from when it was done, we probably would have gone back and opened it back up and made some small changes. And I think I could have leaned into some of the, some of the healthcare and health aspects of it that are even a, like a more connection to our world. I don't feel like it on reflection. I don't feel like it's missing that stuff or that it needs that, but I know, you know, I like connecting dots, especially in, in kind of uh, backdoor ways. And I think there are some things there are, there are so many letters are about medical um, situations, medical, you know, issues. Um, so I think that we could have, we could have gotten further. I mean, to give you a different example, there was a letter in there about a woman who survived a hurricane. And she talked about, I wish I could remember which hurricane it was, but it's a hurricane from 1969 or 68. It's a big, big hurricane. We looked it up. It was a big, big hurricane. And basically she had the Hurricane Katrina experience in 1969. Like she was trapped in her home, floodwaters had risen, and she had to go out to the attic like they they took an ax and chopped a hole in the roof to climb out onto the roof from the attic to get rescued by a boat. And for the longest time, that letter was in the film. And if the film had come out five years earlier, or I guess 10 years earlier, closer to Hurricane Katrina, that letter would have been one of the main letters of the film, you know, but as we got further and further away from that, it just like didn't hit quite as hard, you know? Um, uh, and uh, sorry, I've got a different um, press person calling me directly on my phone. I don't think I'm late um, to their call. Um, I'll give him a ring. Okay, that's uh, Chuck Braverman calling me. Yes, okay. yes, that's next guy. I'll let hey. him know. All right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think going there's always like I said, it'll never not be relevant, and there isn't like a single public, there isn't like a single social aspect that you can imagine that isn't in those letters in one way or another. Um, well, the, the needs of people are 
going to remain pretty consistent. It's just the actual, the events that you're tying it to are what change, but they're, yeah. the, that, that experience is universal and constantly there. And I think the tying those two things together, you're talking about connecting those dots. Um, I think that it works a little bit better when we're allowed to do that ourselves instead of having somebody do it for us when they're standing in front of a room full of people and telling and telling them what to think they might come on board. Chances are you're just, you know, kind of preaching to the converted at that point, or you let people do that math on their own. And I think they come along and actually have a more genuine, genuine experience when they have to connect those dots themselves. Yeah. Agree. And that's a, I, that's my preference as well, but I'll tell you that is the hardest part about my job <laughs> is honestly, it is yeah. it's knowing, you know, I mean, even now in this interview, I say way more words than are necessary um, in real life, you know, given the opportunity to edit my own speech over the course of a year and a half, I'll nail it down to like the rudimentary pieces and leave space. I swear. Um, but in real life, I will fill the empty space with, context and clarity and you know and then restate it and then state it again a different way Um, well it's that thing when you find yourself talking and you're just saying words until you find your thought and it's it's amazing that somebody that's not listening to you that's that's not inside your head they won't even hear it but you're you can listen to yourself and say oh okay i know what i'm doing right now i'm trying to find the next thing that i need to say right now i'm looking for all those context (laughs) clues to figure it out but Nobody else hears it. So you're fine. We're all, yeah. I think, at least I hope not. Yeah. So, but th- thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I really do appreciate it. This has been fantastic. So, and I, and I love this. So it's something I'm definitely highly recommending to people. Well, thank you, Christopher. I, I want to appreciate like the way that you led off this call. I'm so thrilled that tower got the reception that it did and that it found the audience that it did. Um, it still impacts my life literally every day. Um, making, I, I, I love it, but I mean, it's not, uh, you, you, I don't want you to have to talk about it for the rest of your life. Well, so. no, I mean, that's, and that's what I was going to get to. That's my next point is like, it's, I'm thrilled that it had that impact. And honestly, it's been a, uh, fear isn't the right word, but it's been a, a question along the way is like with the, with the follow-up film, with the next film, you know, engender new conversations or, and so I'm thrilled like that you let off with that because it tells me that, that we did something right these last few years. And, uh, and I appreciate it. I appreciate well, your time. I know that, um, I, I, am not sure about you, but I'm a big music guy and there's that idea of the, uh, the sophomore effort and what, when you have something that really breaks through in that way, the, you know, kind of the, even though you've gone to bat many times that people just haven't seen that first time that publicly everyone kind of know becomes aware of you in that way. It just can be, what did they do afterwards? And I don't know. I, I, to me, it's just, I feel like I would much rather talk about the current thing that's there. So yeah, that, that's just my own preference. So, but yeah, it's, I'm definitely on board though. Whatever else is coming down the pike next, I, I really want to see it. So, so thank yeah. you. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. You got it. And thank you. Uh, thank you for setting this up. I really appreciate it. I, <laughs> no I, I keep wanting to say Emma, but not. Yeah, yeah well, Emma. it's okay. You can, you can call me Emma. <laughs> um, thank you both so much. Keith, we can join your next interview now. He's ready for you. And- Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck. Give me hope. 
Boys crack.